Welcome to the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. Okay, we'll doubtless have a few more people coming in late who honor World Food Day by not eating the food early. Um, it is World Food Day. Uh, we are therefore particularly delighted uh, to have uh, Nididi Nuanelli here giving us um, uh, the talk, which is advertised on the screen. Um, uh, my name is Bill Clark. Uh, I'm a member of the faculty here, uh, sometimes member of the Center for Business and Government, where I direct the Sustainability Science Program. Um, let me say a few words uh, about Nadidi, but she's told me she would rather have the time to speak than for me to tell you everything about her. So I'll just tell you a few things about her. Um, she is uh, you know, a highly experienced entrepreneur in the uh, development realm, um, working uh, uh, principally in Africa, but uh, with consultancies and experience around the world. Um, that she has uh, been on the boards of a number of large companies. Uh, she is the author of uh, all sorts of pieces of scholarship, uh, but most recently, I think, um, her book on sustainable innovation in Africa, A Practical Guide for Scaling Impact, which was published, you have the copy, come on, um, by, by Rutledge in 2016, but was actually a project that matured uh, here at the Center for Business and Government, when Nadidi was a, um, a senior fellow in the 2014-2015 uh, academic year. Uh, that, even that, however, was not her first acquaintance with Harvard. She has an MBA from the Harvard Business School, um, which she uh, took to uh, complement her previous education at Wharton. So uh, having chatted a little bit with her about the uh, activity she's going to be undertaking this year, which is, in fact, to produce a uh, follow-up book on the topic of the uh, presentation today, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to have her with us. She's uh, promised to keep her remarks to less than 40 minutes in order to benefit from your comments about what you would like to see in her book that she either didn't have time or hadn't yet thought about including in her presentation. So, Nadidi, great to have you here. Look forward to the presentation. Thank you so much. Well, happy World Food Day. I'm delighted to be here. And thank you to Professor Clark. He's actually my faculty advisor. And he said I should speak for 20 minutes. And I had planned to speak for one hour. So <laughs> we've agreed on 40 minutes. I want to thank Scott and the team at the Masaba Rivadi Center for Business and Government. They've been extremely supportive. When you have your first coming, and then you ask if you can come back. It means you had a great experience, and the team has been extremely supportive, so thank you so much. So I've been given a little time, so I'll walk you through. Um, the overview is really just to introduce the agriculture and food landscape in Africa. Most of you will be familiar with many of these indices, how the ecosystem has evolved, and then to get into the meat of my book, which is the role of entrepreneurs and technology, and my own personal experiences in the space. So agriculture is the bedrock of most African economies. And Africa is actually naturally endowed for agricultural excellence. Almost everything you put in the ground in most of our communities grows. Um, we have 60% of the world's arable land. And we are the number one producer of many, many, many value chains, cashews, cocoa. So if you have a chocolate bar, 
70, one out, seven out of 10 times the cocoa is from Africa. Um, and that's reflected in so many other value chains. And yet, we're net importers of food in most of our countries. The only country that's not a net importer of food is actually Cote d'Ivoire because of <coughs> cocoa. Um, and we import cereals and vegetable oils, fish, sugar, etc. And we have a challenge around malnutrition. Right now, one out of every three children is stunted, which affects brain development and affects future outcomes. This quote by Akiwumi Umi Adesina captures it quite well, that if we don't address the stunting problem and the malnutrition problem in Africa today, we have stunted economies tomorrow because outcomes are linked to nutrition. In fact, according to FAO and GAIN, hunger kills more than AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria combined on the African continent. So how did this become a reality? First, there's been underinvestment in the sector. And after a conversation with Zoe Marks yesterday, who's my other faculty advisor, she said, you also have to talk about the impact of colonialism um, in your book. And I said, well, that's taking it a bit too far. But the truth is that most of our value chains and our ecosystems were designed for an export market. So the focus on cash crops versus food crops, the feeder roads primarily being linked to the ports as opposed to, to processing sites or to markets were really um, some of the past from the colonial system. Similarly, we haven't really developed um, a lot of infrastructure around irrigation, around mechanization, because we were supposed to be also importing large amounts of produce from the colonies. So this is part of our heritage. Simil when you look at fertilizer, when you look at feeder roads, when you look at uh, mechanization, you see that we're so behind international standards. There are key gaps limiting the emergence of vibrant ecosystems across the entire value chains, and financing remains a huge burden and a huge challenge. In fact, when we look at Nigeria in particular, and you look at all the different initiatives that have been established by governments to ensure that financing gets to farmers, when we looked at it last year, only 4% of commercial bank lending actually got to agriculture, and very little of that actually trickled down to smallholder farmers. So there's still significant bottlenecks when it comes to financing in terms of exclusion, in terms of bad debt, in terms of uh, institutional coverage, in terms of lending rates, and there's an ignorance around what financing mechanisms are most appropriate for what size of business, and there's a lot of fear around the agriculture sector and a lot of heightened awareness around risk associated with agriculture. We also have very high rates of post-harvest losses, and this is primarily because we haven't invested in processing locally. 10 to 60% of fruits and vegetables, grains, tubers actually go to waste. And you can look at the spectrum across. In Nigeria, 50% of tomato goes to waste. Um, in Kenya, 33% of maize goes to waste. Majority of the packaged foods in our supermarkets are imported, um, and you don't have to um, You'll be surprised, growing up, that was not a reality. But today, that's the reality in many, many, many African countries. And women continue to face challenges in agriculture linked to access to land and access to financing, um, and a lot of uh, limitations tied to cultural views um, and ownership laws. And the same with youth. Many young people don't find agriculture as an attractive um, sector for them. Uh, we've been working to change that, but it's not easy. Um, they feel that 
Their fathers who were farmers are poor, so they don't want to be poor. And that association of poverty and farming is one that we have to break. And then climate change is very, very real on the African continent. And in fact, I think we are bearing the brunt of some of the mistakes that other countries have made. And you don't have to look too far to understand what happened to Mozambique this year. Nigeria last year, four states were underwater, and that affected all the investments that farmers had made. We made an investment in a rice uh, a company called Koscharis Rice, and the entire farm was flooded. Um, and this is also causing challenges around farmer uh, conflicts with herdsmen because they are being um, forced to move down south because of the desertification happening in the north. Um, when you look at most African countries, we spend way too much on food. Nigeria actually leads from behind. 56% of household income is spent on food, the highest in the world. Um, Kenya follows us very closely. And this is just shocking, right? Because if we're so naturally endowed for agricultural excellence, why is food so expensive? And that's really because of the broken value chains and the challenges around that. When you think about the population growth, and the 2.4 million billion that we're expected to be by 2050, you wonder if we're net importers of food today, what are we going to be in 2050, unless we do something really drastic. Um, a study that was conducted by Wahingen University says we're going to have to increase by threefold just our maize yields to be able to feed ourselves by 2050. But I'm an optimist, so I set, I've set out all the challenges, and now we're looking at what the future holds, and that's the real bulk of my research over the next one year. This is a quote I've adapted by Nelson Mandela. And Ngozi Okonjo-Iwola actually used this quote yesterday. I was like, oh, she saw my slides. <laughs> like slavery and apartheid, I changed poverty to hunger. It's man-made, and it can be overcome and eradicated by the actions of human beings. Sometimes it falls on a generation to be great, and I think we can be that great generation. So transformation is possible, and we can lead that transformation. So we've put out a very bold vision, Sahel Consulting, Nourishing Africa, and myself. And this vision is that by 2050, we will have a flourishing, sustainable, and just food ecosystem which leverages ag tech and digital innovations driven by Africa's vibrant entrepreneurs to ensure that the continent nourishes itself and becomes a net exporter of food. That's our vision, and we're going to accomplish it. Now, why do we think we can accomplish it? Number one is that there's innovation on our continent, and it's driving a lot of change. And we're going to be able to leapfrog because we're going to leverage that innovation very carefully and wisely. Cell, fo cell phone penetration in Africa is one of the highest in the world. These statistics actually, Ngozi Okonjo-Iwala's presentation said there were 800 million subscribers. So I have to update my data with hers. Um, 800 million subscribers, which means that you can have mobile money transactions, you can share data, you can share information, and allow some market linkages. It opens up so much. Um, there are sensors now being used. There's bioengineering, mobile applications. There's a professor at Stanford who has been very supportive of my work, who from his office can actually see farms in different African countries and see farms side by side, and which ones are more productive and which ones are not, and which ones are going to have higher yields and which ones are not. That data is available to us. That technology is available to us. It allows us to plan. It allows us to make decisions and fosters precision agriculture, which improves yields and outcomes. Recently, CTA looked at 
close to 360 <coughs> digital innovations in Africa um, and looked at what they're being used for and the impacts they're having. Most of them are really around data, but we're starting to see a lot more around market linkages, around supply chain management, and around um, financial inclusion. And these are ongoing interventions on the African continent with varying level of impact and users. And the truth is that we're seeing a lot of bright spots. Some of them should be scaled, some of them are too expensive, but they're making a difference. And then young entrepreneurs are showing us what's possible. Across the continent, we see young people who are looking at agriculture from an innovation lens and are starting new initiatives to drive change. Um, not just in the core um, industries that we're used to, but even looking at insects. I mean, insects are very, very popular now in Europe as a growth opportunity for protein sources and alternative protein sources. And now in Africa, we're starting to look at insects, starting with animal feed, but then expanding. I've often joked with my friends, we know what we can do with cockroaches in Nigeria, right? People are making money off insects in other parts of the world. And because we're in the tropics, it doesn't take a lot to cultivate insects. And a young lady uh, has a company called Ekodudu doing just that in Kenya. So even if you're a pessimist about Africa's future, if you look at the numbers, you have to get excited. If every African just spends a dollar a day on food, then we have a $876 billion industry already today, right? But if we spend $10 on food, we have an $8.8 .8 trillion industry. And somewhere between $1 a day and $10 a day, that's where most Africans live. So this is a sizable market. The question is, what will it take for us to really leverage it and unlock it? So the focus of my book is really on scaling creating a million entrepreneurs who have a revenues of over a million dollars to drive this $1 trillion industry that we can envisage. And Professor Clark mentioned that I had spent a year here writing a book previously called Social Innovation Africa, A Practical Guide for Scaling Impact. And the first takeaway when I was writing that book was that there are certain business models that scale in Africa. And over the last six months, as I've been conducting interviews for this next book, it's been the same six variables. If your business is going to scale in ag, it needs to be demand-driven. It needs to have measurable impact. When I say demand-driven, people have to value the service or the product you offer and have to be willing to pay for it so it cannot be subsidized forever. They have to be willing to pay something. It has to be simple enough for them to understand it. It has to engage the community. It has to leverage technology because technology reduces the cost of delivering a service or a product or even measuring your impact. And it has to be low cost enough because in many of our countries, there's a price point by which people will not buy something if it's a food product. In Nigeria right now, every new entrant asks me, what's the price point? I say 50 Naira. If it's above 50 Naira, you're gonna have to innovate to think about how to make it hit that price point. And it's the same thing in the United States. There's a price point which would you, if a product is beyond that price point, as a fast-moving consumer goods company, you become a luxury item. These exciting business models are evolving, and many of the entrepreneurs we've interviewed have said they came in to solve one problem and quickly realized they had to tweak their model multiple times to get to address the huge challenge, leveraging technology. Tweega is an example that I was really excited about. It's less than five years old, and it was started by um, a former uh, executive at Coca-Cola and a partner. 
And when they started this company, they basically wanted to export bananas to the Middle East from Kenya. And they quickly realized there's a problem here. We can't export bananas if there's no local supply chain that ensures standardization, that ensures that the bananas are ripened at the same time, the quality is consistent, and we have a regular supply base. So they quickly had to tweak their model and say, let's start building that locally. So let's build a supply chain that can supply the local market. So using technology, they engage farmers. They know when the bananas are ready to, have, to be harvested. They take them to conditioning centers. And then who are their target customers? Not large supermarkets, but mom and pop retailers who, are open air, who have open air shops, who use their mobile phone to place orders. And within 14 hours of placing an order, your bananas and your fruits are delivered. So the farmer gets paid. The retailer has a tremendous uh, value because they don't have to wake up at 4 a.m. to go to the market to buy fruit, and they can take it to their, um, they get it delivered. And so Twiga is doing, I mean, now works with 7,000 informal retailers in Nairobi. Um, and they've been able to raise $60 million because their model is efficient, it's effective, and it's demonstrating impact. Cowtribe is another very interesting example, and they basically realize most farmers don't have a way of measuring, uh, of tracking when their cows need to be immunized. So using software as well, they're able to link farmers and vet doctors in local communities and provide that communication and the linkages to ensure that cows get their immunization when they need it. So the second piece, apart from the business models that, that we've been hearing over and over again is branding and marketing. And that was not, I did not have a chapter in my first book on branding and marketing. But this is so critical in ag and food, especially in Africa. Um, and we have a huge challenge around this because many Africans, entrepreneurs, don't tell their stories very well. So you don't know about them. Um, they don't know how to package themselves and they don't know how to um, amplify their voices. And this is something we realize is so critical to the work that we're doing. And so we're devoting time to this. One man who has done it very well is Jahil, and some of you know him from Hello Tractor. And he has made this so pivotal to what he does. And when I was interviewing him for the book, he said, Ndidi, I wake up every morning and I listen to podcasts and earnings results of all the CEOs of, that I want to partner with. So I know what John Deere's CEO is thinking. So when I meet him, I can speak his language. So he started in Nigeria, now they're in Kenya and India. And they branded themselves as the Uber of Tractor. But what are they selling? They're software. They're selling software, connecting Tractor owners to farmers who need the services. Um, but he's done so well that he gets other companies to advertise for him. And so he's been in the Washington Post, The Economist, Fast Company, BBC, name it. And he's well recognized for what he does. But he's made branding and marketing an art. Now, I ask you, how many of you listen to podcasts of the CEOs of the companies you want to partner with? What, how many of you follow the earning results? It was actually a good, something for me to think about. Um, and now he partners with every single major multinational that's committed to growing their business in Africa, including Coteva and Mars and everybody who, who has a focus on this sector. The third major issue that's required for scaling is talent. Um, and Every entrepreneur that we've interviewed recognizes that first, they themselves have to have that vision, that passion, that commitment, and the tenacity to stick it out, because it's not easy. It's a tough sector, you don't get rich overnight. 
But if you're committed to it, you can achieve tremendous success. Beyond yourself, you have to identify a committed board of directors and capable team members who are interested in this sector and will work with you. There has to be a commitment to values and ethics um, as a pre pretty important part of what they do. Um, and we've seen some examples um, of individuals and groups using talent very, very effectively and being able to recruit talent. New Cafe is basically an umbrella group for coffee providers in Uganda. And what struck me about them is that when I asked them about how many employees they had, they, had, they said 369. But they have 65 interns from Makerere University and from interns all over the world. That's a steady source of talent for them. That's their strategy. And then Good Nature Agro is here. Yeah? So they're very interesting. In, in Zambia, they're doing amazing work um, in the seed sector. But what they've decided to do was, was basically to create these private extension agents. They essentially have like a mini university to empower these private extension agents. Um, and they're incentivized to work with farmers and get their seeds into the, grow the right seeds and then also get them in the right markets. And this is just two, these are just two interesting examples of how people are leveraging talent in innovative ways. I also love Partners in Food Solutions. Now, they are based in the United States. But what's really unique about them is that they form partnerships with all these corporate organizations who have staff who want to give back to Africa. And so these staff basically volunteer their time to help African agro-processors. Ace Foods has used them many, many times. Whenever we want to buy equipment, we call Partners in Food Solutions. We want to buy a sterilizer. We've never bought one before. You guys know what sterilizers are. Can you guide us through the process? And they've been able to expand across Africa in partnership with local organizations. And more recently, they're actually placing interns within companies to support the agro-processing sector. Financing is the fourth piece. And I put it at the fourth piece because most people say, I need financing. And I'm like, no, you don't need financing. In fact, this quote by Hadija, who we interviewed for the book, says, not all money is good money. Don't, you have to refuse grants sometimes. She, this is her fourth business. Three of the first three failed. And she said, I've made mistakes because you become a donor darling. You take grants, even for a private company, and it sends you down a very, very difficult path. Uh, many times you become agents of what the donors want, and you forget what your core business was when you started. Now, there's lots of money in this space, but they have, most investors are looking for companies. They can't find the companies that are investment-ready, that have transparent and fin uh, financial accounts, audited accounts, a good track record, et cetera. But there are lots of funding opportunities, and we're already capturing them um, so that most of you have access to them. Uh, because for me, the biggest challenge is not the funding. It's actually being able to know what the right type of funding is and how to structure your engagement with the funder. There are lots of funders in this landscape. Sahel Capital, our sister company, is a private equity fund in that space. But we have many, many other examples of both grants and loans available to agripreneurs. And then the fifth piece is around partnerships. There's no way you can succeed in the agri and food value chain without partnerships. Partnerships are tricky, but you need them to be able to really move forward. Partnerships with government, partnership with other nonprofits, other for-profits to really expand your scope. There are many examples of the entrepreneurs that we've talked to of good and bad partnerships. And Sahel Consulting recently, uh, through our dairy development project, understood how complex it is to actually form these partnerships. We were basically linking dairy farmers 
to milk off-takers and partnering with government extension agents is tough. It's not easy. But you need these partnerships to scale. And then you need an ecosystem that works. Um, you need policies that create an enabling environment. You need, the government needs to create financial incentives. You need market-driven research institutions that can provide relevant data. And there are lots of different interventions that are required in the ecosystem. But I would say that in, even when governments are not willing to do the right thing, the private sector can work together to set standards for themselves. Ethiopia is a worthy example, and I'm very excited about Ethiopia. I'm going to Ethiopia next week. They set up the ATA with a 20-year time frame, basically saying this is one-time intervention. We're going to fix this sector, after which we disappear. And their goal is to reach productivity levels of Asian and Latin American countries for key commodities. And we've seen how through the commodity exchange, through different interventions, they're making changes because they have a time frame and a very clear work plan. We need this to be emulated by many other African countries. So I'll wrap up with just insights from my own personal engagement in the sector. So I'm the managing partner of a consulting firm called Sahel Consulting. We work across West Africa. And our vision is to be recognized as the most trusted consulting partner and point of reference in the agriculture and nutrition landscapes. We have a range of partners we work with on many, many projects. Um, and I mentioned the dairy development project. This was probably one of the toughest projects we've had to work on. And we've done three years of it, and now we're going to be doing another five years. Because dairy is such an important value chain in Nigeria. We're net importers of dry milk. 99% of the milk we consume in Nigeria is imported. And yet, we have the fourth largest cattle herd in Africa. So there's a disconnect between our dairy and our cows. And so this project really had an infrastructure component where we're building solar-powered boreholes, artificial insemination, creating a feed and fodder industry, literally making a market work that didn't exist before. Um, but it proved to be really, really effective and impactful, and now we're expanding it to five states and six new processors, where the processors have to commit to sourcing locally and they have to match the funding that comes from another international funder. We also work in seed systems, and we've been doing a lot of seed system interventions and creating entrepreneurs. Um, in Yam and Cassava, and two very important value chains in Nigeria. And I mentioned a sister company, they've invested in rice, dairy, uh, shea butter, um, poultry, and edible oils. And then I mentioned that we have a problem with youth. We have a huge problem with talent. My, the biggest barrier to my growth right now in Nigeria is talent, staff. So if you guys are interested in working, Come on home. <laughs> the point is, what we decided to do was to go to our universities and really spend time with these young people. Um, and then we realized that agriculture was their fifth choice option. They wanted to be doctors. They couldn't get into medicine. Pharmacists, they couldn't get in. Microbiologists. So they now settled for agriculture. And they're trying to get out because they think there's no future in this. And so we're trying to change their mindsets. We give scholarships. We give internships. And then we have these forums where we're educating them on the opportunities in the sector. And it's starting to change, but not fast enough. I am also the co-founder of a food company called Ace Foods. We source locally and process for the local market. We have about 14 SKUs in supermarkets around the country. And then we also have mostly B2B sales to Unilever and companies like that. Um, and we're displacing imports gradually and also trying to address malnutrition. We have a soya maize blend fortified with vitamins, vitamins and minerals, which we also donate to in internally displaced people around the country. And the last initiative that we've launched to support this book, actually, or that came out of the book, is called Nourishing Africa. And I'm most excited about Nourishing Africa. 
So we started Nourishing Africa because of the book, but also because of our experience. Challenging fi challenges finding data on the sector, and on a daily basis getting emails of people saying, Didi, I want to enter the poultry sector. How fast is it growing? Where are the opportunities? Um, training and e-learning, um, access to funding on a daily basis. People are asking, where can I get money? Um, so this is supposed to be basically a LinkedIn, Facebook, and DevEx for the ag and food sector in Africa. That's our vision. And our vision is a million entrepreneurs, a home for a million entrepreneurs driving this $1 trillion industry. So it's live. It's not fully developed, but it's live. I hope all of you have got flyers on Nourishing Africa. Uh, spread the word because it's going to be as effective as the engagement on the sector. But we're getting so much interest from other people who want to partner with us. We're going to be having weekly webinars, training entrepreneurs, getting them excited about the sector. And I really believe we can drive a lot of change. So I'm wrapping up with a quote. This is my current mantra this year. A young African speaking to a president said, this generation is no longer asking God to grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change. We're asking the Almighty to grant us the courage and the wisdom to change the things we cannot accept. So one of the things I cannot accept is that a, a continent that's naturally endowed for agricultural excellence is a net importer of food and has one of the highest rates of malnutrition and hunger in the world. I cannot accept that. I think it's a travesty, and my generation will not allow this to continue. So I'm coming back to our vision, which is that by 2050, we want a flourishing, sustainable, and just food ecosystem, which leverages ag tech and digital innovation, driven by Africa's entrepreneurs, to ensure that we can feed ourselves and become a net exporter of food. And yesterday, I met with a legend, a living legend called Ray Goldberg. And he said to me, Didi, you're too narrow in your thinking. It should be Africa nourishing the world, not just nourishing itself. And that challenged me because I realized if we have 60% of the world's arable land on the continent, we should be nourishing the world. That's a big task. And it can't be accomplished alone. So there are some practical steps that all of us need to consider. First, we need to change our mindsets about what Africa can achieve and what is possible. Because many of us struggle with what we see every day, but we can't see the future. We have to buy proudly African food. And I told Scott that next time, we're going to have African food that we're serving today. I'm actually challenging people everywhere I go. I say, how many Af what's your favorite African dish? What's your favorite Nigerian dish? Um, and most people who are not Nigerian can't name one. And I can't imagine right, how the rest of the world hasn't benefited from the amazing food in Africa. And so my mantra now is we want to be as synonymous with Japanese, Indian, and Thai food, right? Nigerian, I've pr just picked three countries, Nigerian food, Senegalese, and Ethiopian food will be synonymous with Japanese, Thai, eh? Which country am I missing? Ghana, no, 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 no. Let's, let's just manage these three. <laughs> I understand. Proudly African food. We have to change the paradigm around African food. We have to advocate for a level playing field for farmers and processors, and that's what you guys can do here because it's an uneven playing field. We have to advocate against dumping and food fraud. Africa is often considered the sink of the world. I mean, the food that is imported into Africa is substandard. And I know that because I've been doing a lot of research on food fraud. And we have to tell positive stories. I started off saying how bad it was, but I also wanted to show you how great it's becoming because entrepreneurs have refused to sit silent. 
they've decided to take the future. We must leave a legacy for our children and grandchildren. And this is the picture that I want people to think of when they think of Africa. Not the starving child, not the malnourished child, but these vibrant children who have a great future ahead of them. And I think together, working hand in hand, we can accomplish this in our lifetime. Thank you very much. How much time? Okay. All right, so I'll take contributions and questions. <laughs> so uh, ground rules are, are as follows. Uh, raise your hand to get in the queue. Um, questions ought to have question marks after them, and they ought to be short enough that they sound like the question rather than uh, your own lecture to the group, which you can do by registering the stop for some future date. Um, if you've got a question that is a really short, immediate follow-up to the one that's just been discussed, <laughs> put up two fingers, and I will try to get you in the queue so we can actually have conversations rather than just ping pong. So uh, the floor is open. And please identify yourself. Hi, thank you so much, Oli Shahali. Uh, I work with Bell in the Sustainability Science Program, a lot of high tech. Um, this goes back to sort of what you said at the beginning with uh, Professor Zoe Marks asking you to think about colonialism. But what we see so often in, or in agricultural technology and agricultural technology adoption is that the poorest farmers end up not really benefiting from supply chain interventions or new technologies. So what has been your experience and how you actually make it so that you're not just growing African agricultural economies but making sure sort of the poorest benefit? Stand up, and we'll, I'm going to ask you to repeat the question, the short version oh, yes, of the question, um, and uh, we will have our questioners stand up in the future. Okay. All right. So, the question was, when with all these ag innovations, most smallholder farmers can't afford them or don't benefit from them. So, what are you doing to address that? So, recently, um, Agra had this conference called Agrif in Accra, and they released this report called the hidden middle. And I was on a plenary, and I was like, this middle is not hidden. The SMEs working in the ag space are actually, for me, the catalyst to addressing that problem. So I'll use Ace Foods, for example. Because Ace Foods sources from 10,000 farmers, we can change their behavior because we're buying from them. If we didn't have, if you don't have Ace Foods as that intermediary who has been buying from them consistently, they won't change their behavior. They won't adjust. Many times you have programs that come in and say, we're going to introduce technology, but then sort yourself out. And the farmer says, why should I pay for it? As opposed to saying, Ace Foods needs this data, Ace Foods needs this quality, Ace Foods will pay for it or subsidize it in the short term. And so I think we need a lot more SMEs. We what shocked me about that report, which they actually identified, is that many people focus on smallholder farmers and then they focus on big companies like Dangote or... Nestle, they don't realize that the SMEs are actually going to be the catalyst. And in America, this country is built on the back of SMEs. The same in Africa. So I think we need to start seeing them as catalysts. If they are, if you partner with them and they can source locally, then farmers will change behavior. And I'm seeing that the dairy project is another example. You imagine that you're asking Fulanese, historically, they travel around with their cows. That's their their culture, and you want them to settle. The only way they're going to settle is there's water. You can buy feed every day, and they'll actually buy feed. 
and will buy your milk. Those three things, they'll settle. Why do they need to travel and walk around the country from, you know, from dawn to dusk if they have those three things? So that's, we're seeing that, that they will change their behavior if there's a catalyst. Um, so I think we need to start thinking creatively about who those catalysts are and the intermediaries who can subsidize or offer or take on those costs in the short term. So I have sort of a two-part question. The first part being about the dairy farm initiative we're working on in Nigeria. You can speak more to what exactly that looks like. I think we're saying that Nigeria has like the sixth largest, fourth. fourth largest, and then yet we're still importing so much. And so I'm just wondering, how do you guys sort of like leverage the notion of like fresh milk versus like powdered milk, like pink milk, that kind of thing? And also, how do you guys work with government or in spite of government to ensure that locally produced things are actually being like put into the supply chain versus like substandard goods being sent into different African countries. Yeah, so I have to tell you it's not easy. Um, <laughs> the largest company right now in Nigeria, the largest multinational that works in this value chain is Friesland Campina. Friesland Campina is a Dutch company that's owned by a Dutch cooperative of milk farmers. And so we worked with them for two and a half years on this project. They committed to sourcing locally, so they were very interested in this, and they've been doing this for a while. But truly, they're a Dutch company owned by Dutch farmers. They need to buy from their farmers. And so they are conflicted. So I've, I've decided to take on a lot of these companies because we changed the name from Nigeria Dairy Development to Advancing Local Dairy Development in Nigeria. There's a very different feeling. So we've already started advocacy. So the first article we've written is what is milk? Defining what is milk. What is milk? You know, if you in America, when you say, I want some milk, what do you normally think of? Fresh milk, right? You think it's from a cow. But in Nigeria, a lot of what is sold as milk is not milk. It's actually, in fact, they say it's vegetable fat. But I actually think many of these guys are selling you know, cornstarch with milk flavoring with some vitamins and minerals. And why it's a tragedy is because mothers, we have only 23% of Nigerian women breastfeed exclusively. In fact, they think it's like cool to say you're buying milk. This powdered milk that has no protein. So we're taking them on by defining what milk is and saying you can't call this stuff milk. Call it something else. Um, so setting standards is the first battle. The second is that the CBN has recently said that it's going to put dairy on its list of uh, difficult to obtain. It's going to be difficult to obtain foreign exchange if you're going to be importing dairy. And all of a sudden, every single provider who were begging to work with us is now calling us. I've got some visits from the New Zealand government, the Irish government. I mean, these governments are like, oh, my God, you're going to stop importing our milk. Some of these policy changes have to happen for them to realize. And then every time they come, they say, Didi, the market is not ready. We need at least 10 years. And I'm like, you want to say this so that 10 years from now, you're telling me the market is not ready. We need another 10 years. And for forever, we'll continue to say we're not ready. And that's why I admire a lot of the Asian countries in terms of their development. They've developed on their own terms. They haven't cowered to this pressure. Um, so... It's very interesting. You know, you don't realize how much money some of these companies are making in Africa, and they don't want you to know. Some of them are multi-billion dollar industries. 
in countries, not even the entire continent. And why would the government of New Zealand take, uh, fly all the way to come and see what's going on in the country? Because one of the biggest companies is um, from New Zealand. So anyway, there's a policy dimension. And the third is that we need to become more competitive. Our local com uh, companies have to step up and, and compete. There is fresh milk, there's fresh yogurt, and Nigerians will buy it. Don't tell me Nigerians don't have a taste board for fresh milk and fresh yogurt. They want reconstituted milk? No. But it's a, it's a very complex issue, very, very complex, and there are lots of vested interests, as, as we know. In fact, I think agriculture is like the oil industry. The more I learn about this sector, I'm like, wow, this stuff is, is difficult to address because you have strongholds, really, fighting for the sector. You see that in rice, you see that in many, many value chains. So what I should have said at the beginning is not only do questions end with a question mark, once you get one question mark, you stop. Um, and you can put your hand up for a second call at it, but no two question marks. So go here. Hi, my name is Cindy. Can you stand up so yeah. people can hear you? I'm a second year um, MPA student. Um, so you mentioned the potential that the African continent has for development in the next 10 years. Um, what role, could you elaborate a little bit more on what role you feel political institutions within Africa can play in trying to maximize that potential? So I, as I alluded in my response to her, the enabling environment is so critical. And I know that even at the Kennedy School, there's a whole debate about protectionism versus free trade. And so I went to the business school. I always believed in free trade, right? But now I'm becoming a little more conservative <laughs> in my approach. I think some, some policies have to protect our local uh, markets. In the Nigerian example, we were net importers of, of frozen chicken until our president, who was a farmer, in his own best interest, decided to ban the importation of chicken into Nigeria. And many of us used to buy frozen chicken because it was much cheaper. It was like one-third the price of locally grown chicken. In the last 20 years, we've seen the Nigerian poultry industry become extremely competitive and vibrant. And now the prices are on par. But it took a very strong stance um, for that to happen. And so, you know, I think there's a role for policy. I think there's a role for data-driven policymaking that's in the best interest of the people, not in the best interest of a few um, very influential stakeholders. And I think that um, an enabling environment would support the private sector to really thrive. Sure. My name is Ikena Nwari. So I'm a dual born MBA, Harvard MBA. Uh, so you mentioned this toward the end of your uh, speech about the dichotomy between Africa being Africa versus Africa being the world. And I don't believe these two things are mutually exclusive, but how do you keep, um, as the demand for um, you know, food around the world grows, how do you keep um, outside interests, multinationals from coming in and just extracting the agricultural resources of Africa as they've done with other resources? So I'll throw the question back at you. I need some answers too. <laughs> what do you think? Because for me, I, th I mean, this is what I grapple with every day. So, you know, this whole story of quinoa. Many of you have heard of the story of quinoa, how, you know, these farmers who used to consume it don't consume it anymore because it's, they get more money from selling it. And now we're starting to say, oh, we have fonio. Fonio is better than quinoa. Buy fonio. And then we can have the same um, fallout effect. So I I'm struggling with how we do that. But I also think that um, the truth is, 
there's unlimited growth potential on the continent. You saw the waste numbers, 10 to 60% go to waste. So even if we just addressed, started doing a lot more processing locally, I would love to, I'm, I'm, I'm challenging Mars and Hershey, start up, I need to see a factory in Cote d'Ivoire. Even if it's a small factory, don't tell me Africans don't eat chocolates. That's the line, Africans don't eat chocolates. Have you heard that line? But have you ever bought chocolates for Africans and they said they won't eat it? <laughs> it has to be the right price point. People will buy it. They like sweet things too. You know what I mean? The point is, if you, pro it's so, I mean, they can be so catalytic. By setting up that factory in Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, you see that a year later, there'll be 10 other factories. When we set up Ace Foods, we're one of the few companies doing what we did. Today, they're like 50. We've been catalytic, right? It's good for the environment to have competition. But unless we make those investments, then we're not going to see the processing happening. We're not going to see the ecosystems being mature. And then the governments will not get strong enough to say, I'm putting a stand. But some of our governments are very corrupt. They are. Um, I always, I don't know how many of you have listened to some of my talks. When I lived in Senegal, I was shocked to find out that Senegalese eat broken rice. I don't know how many of you have eaten chabujan. It's broken rice. So I started investigating. Broken rice is chaff. It's like feed. And yet it's more expensive in Senegal than whole grain rice. And the Senegalese have to break their rice after they grow it so that it can be broken rice. And the year I lived there, I was like, what's going on? Why do these people eat broken rice? My friend was at the Thai embassy, and I'm mentioning this, so please don't repeat this. That same week, ten, he said, I've been spent, spent the whole week clearing 10 cars. Then I saw in the newspaper, Senegalese ministers get 10 new Mercedes-Benz. So the Thai government was giving Mercedes-Benz to the Senegalese ministers. And then, okay, it makes sense. Why, why Senegal imports so much broken rice and pays more? for it than whole grain rice. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. So these are some of the issues we have in our sector. So there's definitely a role for large-scale policy changes, but a role for people like, your, like you who have the right education to come in and inform some of the decision-making that's being made. Okay, I'm going to use my own two-finger rule and follow up on this question. Uh, almost everywhere I know that um, agriculture has moved from relatively local and not participating in a highly competitive pricing environment, uh, what has immediately happened is uh, the development of more or less big market-driven externally sourced agriculture that has resulted in radical degradation mm -hmm. of the environment um, to eventually undermining the livelihoods mm -hmm. of farmers until the investors move on. Mm -hmm. uh, why is that not a concern in your presentation. Uh, if I just look at Brazil, um, you could have given this talk 10 years ago in Brazil mm -hmm. and you would have succeeded. Mm -hmm. um, and Brazil is now torching its mm -hmm. environment mm -hmm. with commercially successful agriculture. Mm -hmm. What do we do about this? You have a response. I do. I really wanted to actually hear yes. about somebody who's grappling with this. Get the right funding and, and grow our revenues, we're going to have to take advantage of exporting to grow. 
for more business and, and create what you're talking about, which is bring another competition. You know, it would be better if there's more lagoon seed companies in Zambia, but there's really not. And so I think we're, I think it's a little bit about like mindset, right? Like why did you start your business and what do you want to accomplish? And if it's just money, then you're going to sell your stuff to whoever will buy it at the best price. But if it's really driven to what you're trying to say, which is like make your country better, then you're going to leverage that, those resources for your North Star, and that's what we're trying to do. That's what How does the market do that? What do you mean? market will set one competitor versus another, and uh, it's cheaper on the short run to drive down the natural capital and environment uh, mm -hmm. and so on, rather than build it up. Yeah. Sure. Well, for us, just one sentence is that, you know, right now we're pretty, I would say nascent, but also in a nascent industry player, and what we're trying to do in our sales is actually to sell, to actually look above the value chain and connect our seed companies, the seed customers, to future buyers in country. So they're, they're selling to you know ground up processors in country, and we're trying to build the whole industry from the perspective of a seed company and realizing we can't just sell seed, you have to sell the whole, whole package. So yeah, I, no, that's, that's yeah, that's very valuable. Thank you. Thank you. Just to address your thing, your question, I think it's a very important question, and I think what I believe is that we have to set standards for industries and for um, and their engagement. Um, so we don't have enough countries and enough communities thinking about what are the minimum standards of engagement. And if you're going to come into this community and you're going to grow, this is what we expect. This is how you're going to... Um, reinvest in the environment, this is how you're going to manage your waste, this is how you're going to treat people, and that's why anything goes in many of our countries. And so I think this setting those standards, and we can't wait for government. We've seen that in the oil sector. Um, we have to have industry associations set those standards and self-police. We're, we're doing that now with fortification in Nigeria, with mandatory fortification. And we're saying the government is not going to hold us accountable, so let's hold each other accountable. Um, and I think we have to do that more effectively. It would be lovely to see a couple of your positive stories about such yeah. industry internally set yes. standards, including where they have come down on bad actors yes. and uh, driven them to either reform or out of the So the new cafe in Uganda mm -hmm. said they're doing that around coffee. I haven't visited to verify, but that's what they said they're doing. Hi. <laughs> I'm curious to know what you think about. Can you identify yourself? My name is Bobby Lana. Uh, I'm the president of Nigeria American Multi-Services Association. Um, I'm curious to know what you think about the preservation part of the business. Uh, I remember some time ago when Obasanjo uh, intensified the policies, the production of cassava, a lot of farmers in those states actually went into it. And that year they had huge harvest. But the time it took between the harvest time and whatever would come in terms of moving it to who needs it uh, resulted in, in mm -hmm. most of those productions. And so the following year, a lot of that was discouraged. And, right. and so uh, particularly in the rural areas where a lot of these small farmers exist, 
one of the big challenges we face is actually how to preserve mm -hmm. their produce from the time it is harvested mm -hmm. to when they potentially do sell themselves. Yeah. And I've, done, I've not heard about how that industry has evolved. I remember during Kuma's time in mm -hmm. Ghana, we actually did a lot in terms of building preservation yeah. Yeah. places in rural Ghana. Yeah. So yeah. So, so losses were minimal. Yeah. But it's one thing to encourage young farmers to go into farming. It's another thing to, you know, most of them will borrow to do that. Mm -hmm. And if they produce and it's all wasted, they will lose the game. Yeah. No, I, I definitely believe in processing as very, very key. And I, I talked about the Twiga example of even market linkages using uh, technology. For me, especially in cassava, what we're seeing tremendous promise in Nigeria is seeing people find all sorts of derivatives for cassava. So today, cassava starch is being used to make Heineken beer. It's being used by Nestle. It's being used by Unilever. Um, they're making Sobitol. So if you find 10 other uses of cassava, right, then the farmer will always have demand for their. And then linking them up through outgrower programs with these off-takers transforms their lives. And so Saltry is one example, Yemisi Aranlui, and she is the number one supplier of cassava starch and sobitel now in Nigeria. And she has outgrow schemes, she has a relationship with farmers all over the communities within radius, I mean within a 50 minute, uh, kilometer radius to her factory. Having those factories all over our country will transform the landscape. In Edo State now, we don't have one big cassava processor. So even last year, the same thing you just described happened. And they wouldn't harvest because the price went from 70,000 Naira per ton to 10,000 Naira per ton. It fell that drastically. So they wouldn't harvest. They, it's too expensive. It would cost more to harvest than to even sell it. Unless you have those primary process and uh, the, the processors in close proximity in every state where there is a large output, you won't make profit. So I really believe there's a need for comparative advantage and for working with state governments to think creatively about what <laughs> industries they need to support to emerge in their states. Scott Leland with the Center for Business and Government. First, thank you very much, Ndidi, for giving us uh, a vision for what uh, African agriculture can be. My question is actually very similar to the one that was just asked. One of the slides that really strikes me the most is the 10 to 60 percent wastage that occurs and what an, and I know that's not unique to Africa that mm -hmm. happens in many um, all over the world <clears throat> um, and it is an incredible business opportunity mm -hmm. for the right entrepreneurs so I guess my question is what other stories success stories can you uh, relate to us uh, that sort of addresses the spoilage issue well that's why we started Ace Foods the food company we have the main reason we started it was because of this high rates of post-harvest losses and so we started with processing spices and cereals and it's been amazing because so many people didn't realize I mean the other day I got an email from Nestle and they said you know we didn't realize that turmeric was grown in Nigeria and I'm like we're one of the best producers of turmeric the average Nigerian doesn't know that turmeric is actually grown in Nigeria meanwhile farmers are growing it and people are exporting it to India maybe it's being reimported into Nigeria as powdered turmeric so the w awareness is not there. And the, I also think there's a need for data because most people can't find these farmers when they do want to process. So one of the things we're doing with Nourish, and there, now there's so many people coming in. There's an, uh, another uh, lady called Afi. She's doing dried fruits. 
I don't know if you, uh, it's called real fruits. Um, dried mangoes, dried uh, pineapples, um, coconuts. Um, so now there are all these, and there are food fairs that are emerging, where you see all these creative granola bar, this and that, where it's a, a movement has, has, has emerged, but they're not at scale. So all these small players um, need to grow to scale, and this is one of the reasons we're looking at it. But in every country, I would say you have probably 20,000 innovative processors that are emerging, but they're tiny. And we, need, we they can't they can't compete. It was interesting. Somebody just wrote an article in the cover of Business Day, Godwin, cover of Business Day, and they listed like all the major spice companies in Nigeria: Unilever, Maggie, uh, Nestle, and they said a major disruptor, Ace Foods. All of us were celebrating. You mean we're we're being listed in the same line as these? We're viewed as a disruptor. You know what I mean? Because we've come in to source locally and do it in an innovative way. So I think for me. And if you go on Nourishing Africa now, we have so many entrepreneurs who are uploading. There's um, a company in Zambia, and she makes uh, uh, breakfast cereals from corn and soya in Zambia. Um, she's done extremely well. She's gotten international investors now. So they're all uploading their profiles and their company information so that the rest of the world will know about them. So I have one question for the group, which is this question around food. What would it take? In Boston, how many African restaurants are there? Who knows? Include Ethiopia. How many? How many Ethiopian restaurants are there in Boston? Three. So how many Thai restaurants are there in Boston? Huh? In Harvard Square, how many Thai restaurants are there? There are more than three in Harvard Square. What would it take to get the same number of Thai restaurants as Ethiopian restaurants? I need practical suggestions from the non-Africans. What would it take? What do we need to do? Because I think our food is just as tasty as, as Thai food. And we have lots of variety, but most people don't even know. There's been a very interesting experiment in yeah. the last couple of years in Boston called Italy, mm. which was an uh, effort backed by the Italian government, but largely funded by Italian food producers mm. to put under one roof and one branding thing um, essentially a bunch of, of what if you were in Italy would be a set of stalls of people providing high quality versions of uh, Italian food and cooking mm. uh, and you can wander into an Italy establishment and sample mm. um, a wide range of different products you can see the backstories behind them and it, it seems to have been remarkably successful because instead of you having to pick out um, finally find a restaurant here, decide whether it was good or not, and then you walk in and you're either going to eat at that restaurant and like it or not. Um, the ability to go around and sample and then say, oh, this is the one I'm going to stay at, turned out to be stunning. So you could build a, whatever the label will be, which you're very good at creating, um, for Nigerian food, for a cross-section of African food. I suspect, given the food scene in Boston right now, um, you set that up down in the Boston market or in, in Davis Square or someplace, people would come. Okay. Somebody has to take capital. somebody has to take that idea up in this room. Yes. There's some people who are working on establishing a, a food hall for shops of color. Mm. Um, also have more diverse food Fantastic. Trying to get both adventurous eaters, um, trying to stimulate that in a broader category, but also the startup costs. Wonderful. 
That's another great idea. Someone suggested we start an African chef prize. What do you guys think of that idea? Huh? Oh, we can't call them chefs. Another name. What other name can we call them? That's, I will include the Mama Poots and the Mama Ada and the, yeah? The street food. But this is this very, two very good ideas. I know, African kitchen. African kitchen. <coughs> okay. Any other suggestions? Food trucks. Do we have some food trucks already here? African food trucks. No, not Nigerian. Ethiopian food trucks? Huh? Asian. So why, why can't we start an African food truck? Is there, a, is there African food in the menu at Harvard? In any of the cafeterias? Why can't, we st why can't you guys ask for that? You don't think they'll do it, do it justice? I tried. They didn't do it. Don't give up. Because then they'll have to order our spices. If they have, not just ours, they have to order something from authentic uh, African uh, suya pe pepper or something. Right? Yes. Well, usually I'll, I'll just introduce myself as a government wife. So, <laughs> so here I'll speak as a parent now because uh, there were many different suggestions and just. It just occurred to me that my kids who go to school, sometimes they, they have a, they offer the school lunch. Yes. And they get so used to it that when they come back home, my African food, they don't eat it. So, uh, so as we're talking and I'm thinking about that, it's the, the people targeting the, I know that that's a different um, topic altogether, but I'm, I'm raising a concern here that, mm. How can we even make, uh, is there any way, you ask the question, is there uh, an African menu, in, uh, African food menu in, uh, how are uh, the African kids in school, how are they fed? And also even the, our African food here, sometimes buying it is so expensive that I do not have any choice for sending for what I can afford to buy. So it's a big challenge. Yeah, no, those are two very important issues. And, and I was telling someone yesterday that Domino's Pizza is now very popular in Lagos. We have Domino's Pizza, we have KFC, we even have uh, Krispy Kreme. And it's amazing, right? We have uh, Cold Stone ice cream. I mean, these chains are doing extremely well. And so these kids who are aspirational, who want to be Western, would prefer to eat Domino's Pizza than a goosey soup. And so that's why we have to start celebrating African food. We can address the cost issue once we're able to increase volumes because it's economies of scale, right? The prices will come down if we can increase the, reduce the post-harvest losses, do more processing locally. The cost will come down. I have no doubt about that. We're starting to see that in some of the value chain. But the challenge for us is really around the branding of African food. And we need to, we need, I need a team that's saying we're going to work on the branding of African food, rebranding African food as the, because it's healthy, it's uh, natural, you know, I mean, all the things that you're, you're, you want today in America, that's what we have. Yeah? And perhaps get out of the gate faster yeah. along the lines that Mexico is now doing on uh, taxing unhealthy yeah. sugar and salt rich basically mass-produced yeah. Domino's food, which is, as you say, driving out yeah. uh, because they cater to sweet tooth, to salt 
mm -hmm. to, and so on. And finally, a few countries are beginning to say, this is nuts. These are making our own indigenous food production impossible. So uh, rather than banning them outright, they're putting progressively higher taxes on those. And some of the Mexico City right now is using those to subsidize uh, essentially domestic indigenous food supplies. And it would seem to me that is an easier thing to do early on as uh, the food shelves stock up mm -hmm. what you are doing rather than only in the crisis of an obesity epidemic, which, yeah. as you mentioned in it's your happening. discussions yesterday, yeah. is beginning to happen, yeah. but is nowhere near no. as advanced yeah. uh, as it is in many of the other countries yep. that have bought into Domino's and Kentucky Fried Chicken and all this junk. Uh, uh, one, just quickly, to defend America. Who are you? Um, um, I'm through, uh, I work with startups at the eye lab on marketing yes. and branding. Oh, good. Quickly defend America, Domino's Pizza is technically an Australian company. Oh, sorry. And uh, Krispy Kreme is owned by a German multinational. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Thank um, you. Yes. There's no celebrity chef. Um, Top Chef has some strong contenders. Nobody won, and it wasn't trendy enough. And yet, the Paleolithic era happened. Yeah. In Africa. So you are the original purveyors of paleo food. Yeah. There needs to be a lifestyle. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Nice. So are you joining the team? I, I, I would happily join them. I think that uh, since we will have yeah. to end eventually, Sorry. that's probably who can top that, that as an ending note. Um, uh, thank thanks. You.